No, this morning uh, I want to open with a question. The question is, where is satisfaction found in life? Where does someone go to find cause to rejoice? This question was placed on my heart as a young teenager and seeking it led to quite a number of changes in my own life. I grew up in a Christian household, attended church more because my parents made me than because of my own choice. I had some understanding of Jesus uh, from years of Sunday school and church and teaching from mum and dad and yet I did not have a faith of my own. I didn't attend any youth group or have any Christian friends as there were no teenagers in my school and there were no teenagers in my church. My days were filled with school, with video games, with TV and that was life. One Friday afternoon after school I was playing one of those video games and mum came in and asked me to pause. Would I like to go to the local youth group? A friend from years past had invited me to the local Lutheran youth. But uh, after pausing the game and thinking for all of five seconds, I could continue to play this game or I could go to a youth group where I knew only one person. And I was extremely shy at that age. I chose the video game that of course brought satisfaction and joy at that time rather than an awkward evening with my peers. I unpaused the game and played on. Nothing had changed. But within a few moments a thought came upon my mind and upon my heart which now I can only, looking back, attribute to the work of the Spirit. I began to wonder as I played, is this all there is? Is the joy of playing games like this all there is to life? There must be more. There must be more. I paused again. I wanted more. I wanted something that would truly satisfy, bring rejoicing to life. And mum and dad had been teaching me for years But the answer to that question is Jesus. I had changed my mind. I wanted to go to youth group. Now, interestingly, uh, only within a few months, I actually left that youth group and stopped attending it because they weren't teaching the Bible (laughs) and went to another one where I didn't know anyone because they were. Such is the power uh, of the calling of the Lord. To make a shy boy walk into a room full of strangers and uh, seeking him. Now the story goes on, obviously, because I'm now a pastor at Cora Baptist. uh, And here speaking to you on the topic of rejoicing in Christ. But it does speak a little bit of the question that introduces our topic where is satisfaction found in life? Where is, where do we go to rejoice? Now the Apostle Paul gives us an answer in Philippians. I'm sure you're all familiar with it and I've heard it a number of times from Philippians 1.21. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. 
And Philippians 3, 7 to 8, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of Jesus. Okay, double-sided, I was confused. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For Paul, nothing brought more satisfaction to his life than Jesus. More rejoicing to his life than knowing him. So great was his pleasure in Jesus that everything in his life, and every, it means everything, was considered garbage. Every pleasure, every promise, every glory to be claimed, every success, garbage compared to Jesus. And Paul was not a man bereft of earthly accolades, was he? He had a lot to brag about. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But all of it, he says, and regards as loss because of Christ. Here is a man who knows where to go to be satisfied, where to go to rejoice in Jesus. It's unsurprising, really, given that it is our created purpose to worship him to be satisfied with Jesus, for by him and through him and for him we were created. We were created to find our heart's satisfaction in Jesus and to rejoice in him. Yet in our post-fall state, we have a tendency to forget, to elevate other things into that position into his all-sufficient position. Now, I have a number of books on my shelves at home and in my office, lots of which offer a great deal of information that is helpful for teaching, but the ones that I find breathe true life into my soul when reading them are few. Among the few are books written by the Puritans, people like Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, Thomas Goodwin, John Flavel, John Owen, George Swinnock, and on. These were men that wrote and preached on a topic that is seldom found in our time. They spoke on topics like the unsearchable riches of Christ, the blessed and boundless God, the heart of Christ, the glory of Christ, the great love of their lives and the place they found their most joy was in Jesus 
who he was, what he has done, what he is doing. But the modern sermons and the modern books that are available are not quite the same. They don't have the same focus. Michael Reeves, whose book we are uh, taking some structure from during this series, Rejoicing in Christ, asks this question. What sells? What puts the smile on the bookseller's face today? The book that is about the reader. People want to read about themselves. Piper says, similarly, the modern world terminates on self. And the biblical world terminates on God. Self is not the only thing, however, that brings about distraction from Christ. Even within the church, we can wrongly seek to place uh, other things in his position. Things that are wonderful and good, yet not meant to be there. Reeves similarly lists grace, the Bible, the gospel, precious theology and vital concepts, all as things that we can easily Uh, easily take the place of Jesus in our lives as though they were the things that saved us and not him. As though he was just another brick in the wall. Calvin wrote, For how come it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines? But because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us, For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence there is nothing that Satan so much endeavours to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ. Because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view, such as he is with all his blessings, that his excellence may be truly perceived. Only when Christ is in his correct position in our lives does everything else fall into place. And when he's not, everything falls apart. And this is really what our series is trying to do at least in part, to draw our eyes back to Christ, to put him back in his correct position from all the distractions that we have and hopefully and prayerfully stir our affections once again towards Christ alone, to treasure him more, delight in him more, know him more by looking at what the Bible tells us about him. Today, We will look at Jesus' deity, just a small topic, followed in the coming weeks by his humanity, his coming, life in him, and his return. But we'll read for now, before starting our topic this morning's portion on deity from 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants, long 
for pure milk, spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. In reading another of Michael Reeves' books titled Rejoice and Tremble, on the topic of fear of the Lord, I came across the idea that to have a true and proper relationship with uh, understanding of Jesus, we have to wrestle with something of his transcendent nature and his imminent nature. That is, that Jesus is both above and beyond humanity's experience and perception and understanding in his deity, as well as being just like you and I in his humanity. Only when we hold both in our hands can we understand something of what it means to call him Lord and friend, King and brother, to submit to his authority over us and to perceive his suffering for us. And in this way, we see something of the depths of his identity, his character and his work, and never find him wanting for the satisfaction that we're looking for. As I said a moment ago, this morning we'll look at some of what Scripture says about his deity, his transcendent nature. And as you would expect, we'll start in John 1 and take our direction from there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in this same chapter in John, it's made clear that John, the author of the Gospel, is indeed speaking of Jesus as he speaks of the Word with a capital W. John himself was born to testify and to announce the arrival uh, of the Word, of the one that would be Messiah. And the one that he testifies of is Jesus. From this one small text at the beginning of John, we begin to see three aspects of Jesus' divinity, of his place as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, is our first one, and it points to his eternal nature. The Word was with God, speaks of a relationship 
that he holds with the Father. A relationship that we'll see is one held in love as the Son. And the word was God points to the fact that he's not just in relationship, but he also is God, is divine. We'll look at each category individually and also far too swiftly for such a large, large topics. I said this is just beginning to get our eyes to look at him. How could something eternal ever be exhausted? But we will simply begin to contemplate Jesus and hopefully today find something to rejoice in ourselves. Let's first look at his eternal and pre-eminent, uh, pre-existing nature. Now we live in a world that is filled with beginnings and endings, don't we? Outside of the last few weeks, you will have seen that the seasons have begun to change. The flowers are blooming and the bees are buzzing once again. People on a Sunday morning are attending church with smiles on their faces rather than grim determination, such as winter brings. It's a beginnings and an ends. My sister-in-law at the moment is pregnant with my nephew, who will arrive in a few months. And yet, at the same time, the last time I was here in this building was for a funeral. Beginnings and ends. We woke up yesterday in the morning with the sun and we went to sleep when it went down. And we woke up this morning and we'll likely go to sleep again tonight and God willing tomorrow as well. Every morning I make a coffee that starts hot and inevitably ends up cold. All beginnings and ends. Ecclesiastes 3 is a passage that we've all heard before and speaks clearly on this. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build and so on. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Gives you a sense of God's size. Yet in all of the turnings of creation, all of the beginnings and the ends that we experience, in a day, in a week, in a lifetime. Jesus was there for them all. He pre-existed all of them. And it will outlast all of them. John 1 has already said it. In the beginning was the word. Before creation was Jesus. In Micah 5.2, we read of a prophecy given to Bethlehem, speaking of Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from, uh, for me one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. 
And again, in John chapter 8, Jesus says of himself something quite remarkable. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. A reference to the Lord's words to Abraham in Exodus. To Moses, not Abraham. These words will have been and will be meditated on for eternity. For they are weighty in eternal ways that we, as people of time and creatures of creation, cannot comprehend. What does it mean to be always? To simply say, I am. There was a time when Nat Mills did not exist. Even given my faith in the assurances that I have of eternal life in Christ, there was a time and always will be a time when I was not and the world continued to spin. But not so with Jesus. There was a time when he had not humbled himself to become a man. There was a time before his life here A time before his birth and his childhood and his adulthood, his teaching, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. But there was never a time when he did not exist in all of the areas that we'll speak on this morning as God, with God. The contemplation of this whole subject of Jesus' deity moves him his words, his work, his place in our lives to a position of unfathomable awe. Thinking upon his eternal nature gives everything he does far heavier weight and purpose and meaning. But what we can know about Jesus is that as this eternal word, is that there is a relationship that he has with God and always has had. This is our second aspect that we'll discuss this morning from John. The word was in the beginning and was with God. But what is the nature of their relationship? Is it one of balance, of yin and yang, day and night? Is it a war of supremacy? Who will be greater? What we see in scripture is this, that the word and the father have a relationship of intimate love for all of eternity. The Ark of the Covenant is a great example of this intimacy. The shape of the lid is that of two angels spreading their wings forming what is called the mercy seat. It resides in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The mercy seat itself is where God dwells in the form of a cloud and is holy. Leviticus 16, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary, inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark. 
or he will die. For I appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat. Such is the holiness of that place. That people die just to be in the presence of the Lord. Only the high priest could enter and go before the ark at certain times of the year and even then only after going through purification rituals. For it was the holiest of places. To enter into that space unprepared was to die. As we saw in Leviticus. A rope, in fact, used to be tied around the ankle of the high priest lest he be found wanting when he goes in there and dies so that they could drag him back out. Even to touch the ark uninvited, was to die. And in all of its holiness, what would we expect to find at the very heart of the Ark of the Covenant? We would find the Word of God. The commandments written on stone once given to Moses reside there inside that Ark. Not simply nearby or an adjacent room or even sharing the room, but in it itself, at the very heart of the presence of the Lord, resides the Word. The Word takes place in the holiest of places before God himself, and God delights in it like no other. In Isaiah 42.1, we find this word from the Lord speaking of Jesus. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, if we couple that with their eternal natures, with the Father's eternal and immutable, meaning unchanging nature and character, we have a joy and a delight that exists between the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Word, that will never grow old, never change, never diminish, never fade, and never have any end. Reeves wrote this. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, stupidly imagining that we have seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in him. We get spiritually bored. But Jesus has satisfied the mind and the heart of the infinite God for eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us in every situation for eternity. Is Reeves right, do you think? Do we sometimes find ourselves tiring of Jesus? Our theology maybe says no. What do our lives 
at times attest to. I found this challenging personally. Do I live as someone that believes I can be infinitely and eternally satisfied with Christ? Or do I at times forget and become misted over as the devil uh, we heard from uh, a quote earlier? Become blind to his overwhelming all-sufficiency and begin to look elsewhere. A question to ponder for the day. Now we also see that this beloved relationship shared between God and the Word is also described throughout the New Testament as one of a relationship between Father and Son. Nowhere is this seen more than in the Gospel of John. If you were to take a pen and underline every time you see the father-son relationship mentioned. Have a guess how many times you would put pen to paper. Any guesses? I've already put the answers down. Yeah. 120 times. There's not that many chapters in the book. 120 times John makes mention of the father-son relationship between Jesus and God. Eight of them specifically talking about it being a relationship of love. Now what do we do when we are in love? Not just in the early days of relationship, but in the latter days as well. We are stirred up by it. Stirred up to great actions of love, not just romance, but joyful, sacrificial actions of love for one another. The greatest of these, I think, being grace to one another in the face of sin, forgiveness. But to lesser degrees, we serve one another. We do things, we buy gifts, we make efforts, we say kind words. We do these things because we were created in the image of God and it's what he does in love. Bartle Elshout wrote that the love of the Father for the Son is the preeminent motive for all of God's divine activities. It motivates them, their love for one another. And he's right, their love for one another gives reason and purpose to all of creation and salvation. All of creation was made by and through and for the Son. All of creation being birthed out of this great love that they have for one another. For the Father to create a bride for his Son. That's us, made as a loving gift from the Father to be given to the one that he loves. How different this is to a Big Bang Theory. Like an explosion of energy and matter into a void and by chance we have what we have. Our creation is not so dry or purposeless. We are a result of love. 
And in our fall, we are redeemed out of their love for one another. Redeemed to be once again the bride of Christ. And even more potently, we are redeemed into the very sonship of Jesus. Because the Father wanted glory for the Son and the Son wants glory for the Father. Everything, all the blessings of the Son, his inheritance become ours. Namely, this intense, eternal relationship that he has with his Father becomes ours and we enter into as well. This relationship that Reeves writes again shapes the rest and the yoke and the burden Jesus has to offer us. In fact, his relationship with his father is the rest. It is the yoke that is light and the burden that is easy. Maybe the other way around. What we see when looking at Jesus is the foundation of all things, all things in him and the Father and their desire for one another. So our rest, our yoke and our burden, all of which are described as peaceful and easy and light, are so because they are founded on this very relationship that we are brought into. Now the third aspect this morning of John's Gospel is Jesus' divinity. In the beginning was the Word, he was with God, and he was God. Reeves has one phrase that stood out and struck me again and again, and I believe it will be helpful to you this morning. I've written on the notes, there is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. How long has humanity wondered about the eternal? How many guesses at the substance of what exists beyond and sits underneath everything else? Surely this is what has given birth to so many religions. The Bible says many times that the Jesus we read of in the Word Is, uh, he is referred to by the prophets and the apostles as the eternal God being made known to the world through him. John 14, 8 to 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Isn't that an interesting question? What we're asking this morning, where do I go to be satisfied? Show us the Father that I may be satisfied. And what does Jesus say? Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you still don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, when you've seen me? John 10, the Father and I are one. Isaiah 9, 
For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. C.F. Torrance wrote, There is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. There is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. And unlike my rambling attempts to speak on this topic, Jesus is the comprehensive revelation of the Father. Everything there is to know about God is seen in him. And he is not limited, as we have seen, to the New Testament, to wherever Jesus' name is put, but in the Old as well, where the Word is at work. He is the Word at creation, where it is spoken and create and things are created. He is the expression of God to the world. He was the word of the Lord given to the prophets. He is the one sent to heal and save the lost. He is the one that makes known the mind of the Lord to humanity. And what does all of this mean? When Jesus speaks in the New Testament, he does so with the authority or more authority than any wise man or sage. He speaks with the authority of God. Not simply an authority given to him as a prophet, but the authority of being God himself. It means that the call to rejoice and place our faith in Jesus is not utterly false as it would be if he was not God. It means that God, God himself humbled himself to become a man and to take on our suffering. It means that the cross has real power behind it. Power to change the world, power to save It means that at the cross, we can say to the one that is dying for us, remember me. And we speak to God and he says he will. It means that we can come to the word that is Jesus. When he first came to us. And we get to know the true God. We grasp some of the intimate relationship that we get to have because of who Christ is. 
as a man and as God. Martin Luther said, we were totally unable to come to a recognition of the Father's favour and grace except through the Lord Jesus who is the mirroring image of the Father's heart. Without Christ we see nothing in God but anger and and a terrible judge. But with him we see his favour and his grace. Now this is the As I said, we could talk, each one of these topics is a talk or a series in and of itself. The deity of Jesus. We will stop here. But as I said earlier, this is not exhaustive. It's a beginning. To begin to contemplate, to begin to place our faith, our rejoicing, our satisfaction, to put Christ in that position as the only one that has that place and let everything else fall into place. And I hope and pray that it has put us in a position this morning just of something of awe, of wonder, even for a moment, to see Christ as he is meant to be seen, more than just a brick in the wall. And next week we'll continue to speak on him in his humanity. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your Son. Lord, we're so used to speaking about him in terms of Jesus and the time that he had here on earth as a man. And that is wonderful and and breathtaking in and of itself, but only grows bigger when we begin to see him as God as well as a part of you, as you. We give thanks for the relationship that you have with your son and that we are invited into that same loving relationship. We're in awe of the love you have for one another, in awe of the way that it birthed such wonderful things as creation, of salvation. That it, your love for one another forms the basis of everything. And Father, I can only hope that I and everyone else here this morning would be able to understand just a little bit more of who Christ is as God. Of what it means to live in a world and have him as creator. of what it means to live in his world, to see, uh, have a worldview, have a lens on our eyes, Lord, that shows the world in the lights of you being the one that is Lord. Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would continue to grow as we spend our time in your word in this series. Give us the ears to be able to hear, the minds, bring us clarity, Lord, where the devil has spread mist or obscuring mist over your name. And let us rejoice in you, Lord, because it brings you glory and you delight to bring glory to yourself and to one another.
we give thanks for the time spent together in Jesus' name. Amen.